0: One, roll the
1: footage.
0: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Simon Severino, your host. And today we dive deep into revenue operations. We will talk about how to identify and close operational gaps, how to improve the buyer journey and increase the lifetime value of your customer and the common traits of all high growing companies welcome the chief revenue officer cro at brett Crumps, io jason reichel
1: hello nice to be here
0: so cool to have you here what is a chief revenue officer
1: all right that's a good question let's start there uh chief revenue officer officer is someone that's in charge of all go-to-market functions and as Businesses evolve, and especially in the tech scene, that means more and more. So it can mean for most organizations that that person's in charge of uh, go-to-market operations, uh, sales, marketing, and customer success. Anything that touches the customer directly is what a CRO is responsible for. Historically, CROs have been glorified VPs of sales, uh, but I'm very happy to say, because of revenue operations and the work that I've done in my career to try to further that mission, uh, CROs are now people who look at all aspects of the pipeline that the customer experiences and tries to maximize the value of each customer. So each yes, as I like to say. Each yes. And what are you
0: currently creating?
1: Right now, I'm uh, working on a startup called Breadcrumbs. And uh, Breadcrumbs is a very specific product that I think that revenue there's need um, and it really is around taking the idea of something like lead scoring which it was an algorithm that people built in their marketing automation tools to identify customers who are ready to talk to a salesperson and taking that same kind of algorithmic approach to what we call contact scoring across all of your different workflows in your GTM stack so things like product upsell uh, cross sell churn risk leads um uh, uh, kind of anything that uh, a, a revenue team needs to operate and do in order to gain customers, that should all be driven by a centralized brain so that as an organization, you know that you are taking specific steps in almost all cases, instead of just leaving your customers up to chance. And this is what we really talk about when we talk about closing the gap for your customers. Uh, there's been a lot of studies and in, in my previous company where I CEO go nimbly, we kind of led the way of saying that gaps cost your company money. we found through our research, that clients were going to buy your product regardless most of the time. So a good percentage of your clients are going to buy your product no matter how you treat them. But the difference is in how much money they're willing to fork over or how long that contract's going to be or if they bring it across the organization or they do it in a small subsection of the organization. And so we're no longer in the age of a customer, you know, doing all their due diligence before they buy. They know who they want to buy. And then what they're actually deciding on is how much money or how much contract duration to actually give you. And every time they experience a gap in your operational process when they're trying to buy they lose a little bit of confidence in your in your team and in your ability to service them
0: how do we find our operational gaps and how do we close them
1: yeah very good question um one so there's lots of different ways to do this but there's there's three primary ways one is you have to move to the most mature kind of organization by mature kind of organization it means I believe there are three types of organizations organizations that are read by led by personal stress or tactics you usually see this in early stage startup companies or small businesses where if the ceo walks into a room and says something is wrong everybody's going to jump to go fix it because it's only one person's perspective on the environment that changes everything else in the environment the second maturity of an organization is when you're focused on teams making teams work better this is why there's such a big thing in the world about marketing and sales alignment because those teams need to work together they need to work together but really what we're doing is we're putting two. Different opposing teams onto the same playing field and say hey play nice together that's a second level of maturity the third level of maturity is what we call customer focus maturity. Which is that you're looking at your actual customers and they're buying experience and you're solving problems from that perspective now it's very common that a customer experience gap will be a team gap, will be a personal gap that someone's feeling. But you should always start with the highest priority, which is what customer gaps are we facing? What things are our customers experiencing? When you do that, then it fixes the alignment gaps and it fixes the tactical problems that people face on the ground as well. But a lot of organizations never actually get to that maturity. So that's the first thing that you kind of need. You need to have an authority kind of mindset shift that it's all about the customer and about the customer gaps that they experience. So that's the first thing. The second thing you need is a measurement system. Uh, I have invented a tool called 3VC, um, which is measuring velocity, volume, conversion, uh, and value across your pipeline. And it predicts, based on stage, where you are having uh, gaps in your buying experience because you'll see trends. You'll see like, oh, in stage two, which is qualification for most companies. our velocity is really bad it, it, we've been getting worse month over month so we should do a project that's focused on pinpointing that gap because our customers are filling a gap in that which decreases our overall conversion so it's really giving clear measurements to revenue operations which most of ops teams still don't have today and so they will tend to do things based on people's requests and the seniority of those people within their organization which can lead to you know not always prioritizing the work that's going to bring the most revenue into the company so that's the second piece that you need to find gaps. And then you need a way to actually go out and test those things in the field. And for that, I use a design thinking principle called durability testing, which is you go out and you actually test and watch behavior, kind of like a product manager would, of the different pieces of your operational stack. And that's how you also find gaps. So those are the three ways you find gaps. Let customers tell you, use measurements and historical data to find the gaps that are trends, and then ultimately get out in the field and be watching the go-to-market motions and seeing where you see people not following the process or where they're circumventing the process and getting better results
0: beautiful and for the last piece if people don't know the durability test can you walk us through an example how does that look like
1: yeah of course so a durability test in the easiest form and, and the most common one that is used by operational teams is rep rides and rep rides look like um, following a rep, doing a specific thing. So let's say we were uh, going to follow a rep doing their closeout call where they're negotiating the contract um, with the with the customer. You would rep ride that rep uh, multiple times and other reps to try to find patterns that are emerging. These are emergent-based patterns, right? These are things that data won't show us until far too late. Um, and so what you want to do is make sure that you're doing the exact same rep ride, asking the exact same questions and being it's not scientific, it's still an art form, right? So durability testing is still an art form, but you are creating the environment to look for patterns. Oh, when the customer asked about pricing, uh, Mitch, uh, uh, you know, went left on the conversation and and took it back to value where Sarah met that head on and she closed all three of those deals where Mitch only closed one of those deals, right? And so these would be patterns that you're looking for and that you're documenting as a revenue operations person that would go into your roadmap. So once you have all those gaps, the last piece that most people don't do is they don't treat their operations team like a product team, in which I'm a firm believer because I come from product management uh, software is that then you need to put that into a roadmap and actually solve those problems systemically, right? And a good revenue operations team 25% of their time is fighting fires and keeping the lights on. And 75% of their time is working on strategic work that's closing gaps that customers are experiencing. This will ultimately gain somewhere between 13 and 26% of additional revenue without the headcount. And so that's a big deal for organizations. And I think that's why RevOps is catching on is because in historically, and I think, you know, this from your job, strategically, the answer for sales and marketing was to hire more salespeople, buy more paid advertising. Um, And that's a costly paradigm to continue to operate in after COVID. And so revenue operations is really heated up because you can do more with less and it's more effective for the team. So you're, you know, by effectively creating more dollars after each customer, you're also increasing your sales commissions, right? You're also increasing the effectiveness of paid advertising. So kind of everybody in the, the go-to-market spectrum wins more with revenue operations being a centralized pillar of it.
0: And everybody right now is thinking, oh, how can I make it a great experience? How can I get a wow from the customer show? How to design a good customer experience?
1: Um, well, again, if you use those three gaps, you'll find the customer, you'll find the gaps. Most people don't ever find the gaps. You rely too heavily on number one, which is customers actually coming to the table and saying they're unhappy. You really, I find that customers are unhappy doing surveys uh, with customers anytime they see how your operations work. Anytime you say, I, I, I'm an SDR and I'm going to pass you off to my AE now. Now, Customers are used to friction. We're used to dialing uh, on phones and having to talk to a robot before we talk to a human, but we don't like that, right? It's not that we enjoy that, it's that we accept that. And the organizations that are not willing to allow their customers to accept gaps, but instead fill those gaps by having an SDR, uh, as a simple, stupid example, an SDR to an AE handoff during that same meeting when that person's qualified is a better customer experience for that customer even if that customer never understands that because they never have to see the inner workings of the organization right um and then secondarily when you start to do your sales process try to use more of a joint selling mechanism so that you're not introducing um reps and other people within your organization and taking them out of the equation so that the customer actually feels like there's a team built around them and this is why i like to call the buying team this is a term that i use on on my teams which is the customer should feel like This is a joint effort to make sure that their buying experience is great and that the product is going to work and fit for them perfectly. Uh, They should not see that an AE doesn't care about them after two weeks because the AE has already been paid the commission after they've signed it. Now that could be internally true, but your customer shouldn't experience that because what that leans them to is when they want to talk about upsell, cross-sell, they're going to go to your success manager who they have a deeper relationship with through implementation, but that person is usually not the best at actually understanding what product might be the right fit because you obviously hopefully most teams are training their sales team to understand client pain and then apply that to a product offering, right? So there's all these sorts of things that are they're under the market. I say that the best thing that you can go look at and the thing that we did with breadcrumbs is we went to go look at what was working in B2C because B2C really takes care of their customers because those customers, they're trying to build brand loyalty with them. They're trying to have them come back and be buy repeat work. Um, and so personalized ads, um, you know, like what we use in our, our, Uh, scoring mechanisms or RFM. So recency recency, frequency uh, monetization so that we can actually look at someone's behavior on our website or doing something in our product and say, this person's done this three times in the last five days. That's a high intent for them to want to buy more. We're going to proactively reach out to them. Now that client may not even understand that they're looking to buy more, but they're pushing the bounds of the application, right? And so that person reaching out right at that right moment with the right, right message is a big deal to going and fulfilling that gap-free experience that our customers expect, right? Somehow Nike just knows that we just looked at, I mean cookies, obviously, but Nike knows that we just looked at the shoes and now they're servicing, servicing up information for us because we've done some kind of digital body language that says we want this. Your customers are doing the same thing, but most B2B enterprises are only kind of focused on their own targets and not focused on what the, the customers are actually doing with their digital body language.
0: What have you seen working in terms of increasing the lifetime value of a customer?
1: Yeah, uh, well, so uh, what we found is that there is software parity, meaning that any organization that's, and this is a popular thing that is in tech right now, which, you know, I'm sure all sorts of listeners are listening to your podcast, but in tech, we have this uh, phenomenon going around called product-led sales, product-led growth, which means that your product is so good that it kind of pushes the customer to continue to use it. Now, this is a great thing in a product and all products should have this, but in reality, Uh, The difference between your product and someone else's product is becoming more narrow every single day. Uh, Developers are very good across the world. There's no more like where America has this very great edge or Europe has this very great edge with developers. You have developers in all regions of the world who are very capable of developing software. So feature parity is very common. So then what can you actually do to increase LTV if it's not based in your product? It's based in the customer experiencing, uh, again, gap-free interactions with your team. And what we think is really important is after every major interaction, like renewal, prospecting, um, closing a deal, um, them signing up to a newsletter, as often as you can, where you think there are real milestones for that customer, surveying them and asking them questions, not like, are you happy? Because you're always gonna get a a negative response to that, but more about sentiment and, and idea. Because again, we don't know when we're unhappy until something breaks that that's generally how b2b software sales work is we are happy with salesforce until we're not happy with salesforce until we become fed up with it it's not usually this gradual thing that happens it's like 10 people in one week complain about salesforce.com in my organization and talking about how it's a shitty reporting tool which leads me to go look at snowflake as an alternative to the internal so, you know, internal innards of Salesforce as being in my reporting function. This is how these things actually work in practice. We like to pretend that in technology companies or in any company, we are very analytically driven, but what we tend to be is emotionally driven and looking for analytical reasons to make a different decision. So ultimately, if you really want to maximize the value out of each of your customers, you have to take that away from them. You have to take those those experiences that is, as a singularity might not make them switch, but in mass make them switch. Um, and, and a lot of organizations have done a lot of good NPS scoring and things like that around this. But I find it's really at those points where you know the customer will face um, face some kind of friction. I like to say that one of the biggest mistakes that restaurants make um, and why we have such a, a conversion to fast casual food like Chipotle and stuff is because people should pay before they eat because once you've eaten, you have to make the judgment call, is that worth my money or not? But you're excited to pay for the food and go and eat it right in the beginning of that process, right? And so these are examples where after the fact I had to make a judgment call, was this worth the money I spent? Whereas if I had paid for it before, I would have left and th- been thinking about what I'm going to do next. And I, I would not have experienced that gap, right? These are common things and why certain business models seem to grow more prevalent like um, – casual fast counter where you order and take all your food and you go sit down and you eat is because they people have less of an experiential backlash from it because they're not being asked to compare their experience I um like and the so idea. these are these are things you're looking for
0: i, I like the idea we, we also get paid up front of course because we want all the excitement to be there and uh, have you seen a restaurant actually doing it where you have to reserve and pay up front
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, very, very common uh, in these fast casual restaurants that are kind of the emergent of the new type of restaurants uh, where you go to a counter, you buy your food, you get your food and you go sit down and eat it. Uh, And we're not talking about like, you know, bad restaurants like fast food like McDonald's. We're talking what but McDonald's does do this. People wonder why is McDonald's so successful? Why are these Mm -hmm. restaurants who don't serve the best food so successful? It's because they give the best experience and people don't really value experience as much um, as they value quality, right? So people, some people think my product is quality, so that's going to show through. That's not true. Um, mm-hmm. you know, only a very fractional, uh, minority of your user group, about one fourth of them are driven by quality of product, right? So then you have three, fourths of your clients who are driven by something else. And, and, and a majority of them are driven by the experience and the frictionless experience of operating with you. And that might mean things like, Uh, example in software is we often expect that someone's going to go take our business case for us and go sell us internally in the organization, which requires them to spend their political capital. Well, a lot of SaaS companies saw about a 40% reduction in net new business because people didn't feel comfortable with putting out their political capital for software in a time when they didn't know if they were going to have their job anymore. What the answer to that was, was team-based selling and for the SaaS companies to get more involved in Okay, this is how this is the messaging for these other uh, identities who are not my direct decision maker, but my decision maker used to convince for me, right? And and then they could see that suddenly they started to pick up net new business again and continue to maintain existing customers with that mindset. So I think a lot of this is just about mindset. We are very slow to change in operational business um, based on what we see working in the more B two C consumer area. Right. I think that B2C companies, even the mom and pop ones inside of, you know, retail shops are much better at identifying when there are gaps in their customer experience and very much more willing to to fix them proactively. Where in B2B, it seems like, you know, the whole house has to be on fire, something like COVID has to happen before we start to really address those issues.
0: And um One question that I'm excited about, who you pick for the strategy award? When everybody's zigging, this person is zagging. But from your perspective, they're doing the right thing. Who do you pick?
1: Well, I have uh, this guy named Patrick Campbell. Have you ever talked to him? Uh, He runs this company called ProfitWell, which they have a product um, where they go and get churned customers back to your software. Because usually most churned customers in software, not because they're unhappy, but because of things like bad Bad credit card processing, uh, lapsed information, that kind of stuff. So they're more like they go and return customers back to you through software and people. Uh, But also, they're very, very good about um, making something like pricing conversation, like uh, how much is package A versus package B versus package C. Very interesting, which is it's a very dry and boring subject, right? So something that I've tried to learn from Patrick is how to take something that you're passionate about and that you see how cool it is. Like I see how cool revenue operations is and think it's dumb that businesses don't focus on it, but try to add some entertainment value to it so that people are willing to listen and, you know, want to take their vitamins per se. Right. Um, and he does a very great job of this, everything from really cool video shows where they do things like, uh, pricing teardowns of really big companies and saying like, this doesn't make sense. This is a great product. This is a great product and pricing strategy to, um, he traveled the, van, uh, the entire United States in a van um, so that he could go to different conferences and be one of the first people that were back at conferences, which I know had a huge uptick for them because conferences are doing very well right now from a conversion standpoint. So like these things are really cool things that they do. And, and again, the content is very interesting and he's very captivating as a, as a leader. So Patrick Campbell is uh, my pick there.
0: Beautiful. And what are three books that inspire you?
1: All right, I'm only going to tell you one book because it's multiple series. Um, But the best business book I've ever read um, is The Laps Anarchist Guide to Business. Um, It's by this company called Ziggerman. Ziggerman is in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And they actually run the first large-scale co-op Whole Foods bakery kind of company. Uh, And they've actually trained Whole Foods and all these other organizations on how to be customer-centric and how to – they are completely co-owned by their employees. So they're actually a, a, a co-op, but they're a massively successful co-op and they've taken all these business strategies and actually now begun to teach for the last 15 or 20 years, B2B companies on how uh, things work. So a, a very big, they're very big about visioning, which I believe a lot in. And I, I believe statements of your team, how to correct mindset issues, um, how to manage yourself. I'm a very big believer that, um, management is an archaic tool uh, and has really no value in the modern business. Um, and they share that mindset and explain how you can actually run a, a team that's managed by themselves uh, versus having managers put in place. Uh, so they're very interesting uh, concepts. A lot of them are based on Emma Goldman, who is a famous anarchist, um, who was also a very successful businesswoman in the 1920s. Um, but a really interesting read, very tactical. I'm very much about reading strategy books that – give me uh, a field guide on how to implement this stuff, right? I, I don't really like, I, lo- I love theoretical stuff, but the theoretical stuff, like most books, you'll end up kind of at the end with maybe one or two pieces of information. The way these books are set up are very actionable. Um, and anyone that I've recommended them to have loved them, one, and then 2 I've found something that's really revolutionized their business. So I really suggest uh, LAPS Anarchist uh, Guide to Business.
0: I <laughs> love it. And uh, what are the common traits of all high growing companies?
1: Uh, Customer obsession, customer focused. I guess customer obsession has been overused at this point, but customer focused mean the buying experience, so really looking at the buying experience. Two, um, creating a culture of autonomy, Uh, and put distributing the decision making to the edges of the organization. This is something that for the last 10 years, I think SaaS companies particularly have failed at. Uh, They do really well when they're a startup and they grow really rapidly and everyone's excited and happy. And then, you know, I talk to CEOs all the time in my practice who say, you know, my favorite moments were when we were a small company and it's because now everything is centralized in this kind of thing your team doesn't move unless you tell them to move all of these things and that's because there's no distribution of authority or power within that organization which is something that i truly believe in and then the third is a focus on product uh and product is incredibly important um and by product it can mean uh lots of things so i think a lot of organizations think of product as their software but product is also the the website and the experience of your chatbots and your upsell process, all of that is a product experience. So looking at it from a more holistic approach. And then the last thing I'll throw in for a bonus point, which is the fourth thing, is as an operator of a company. So this is particularly what I see in operators. Operators who are great and really do revenue operations well, they don't care about the high deals, so they're not looking at the time the company you know, sold that $780,000 deal if their normal deal is $100,000. And they're also not looking at the small deals. They're solving problems for the majority of their user base, which is really important in an organization because everyone gets excited or bummed out by the highs and the lows, right? And so you need those people in high growth organizations who are focused on increasing the middle out so that you you know your middle becomes you know, 120, 150K deals and going lower for your low end, but really focusing on the behavior of that midsection that's the majority of your revenue. So that's something that I think that operators, the best operators really focus on and they actively talk about. Because there's a lot of pressure when you're an operator that you have a, you know, executive coming in and say, hey, we need all this support for this $4 million deal. (laughs) And you might build systems and all this process to try to win that deal. And in the meantime, you know, 60 customers have been affected or prospects have been affected because you didn't solve the problems over here. And so that's a really powerful tool to refocus on actual growth because growth doesn't come in the high or the low. Uh, It comes in uh, spinning that wheel as many times as possible in the middle.
0: If somebody says, oh, I (laughs) want to implement uh, revenue operations in my company, where should they go?
1: so I used to say that you had to be a centralized team, uh, which more and more companies are. I mean, that your oper- your operations team is no longer sales ops, marketing ops. They've been pulled into one revenue operations team that reports hopefully to the CRO or CEO so they have some autonomy away from the sales and marketing and customer success team, which is pretty critical because they should be the yin and yang, not not the servants of. Um, so that's one thing is if I would say that you need to be in an organization where if you tell your sales manager, we're not going to do that for this reason, you have that authority in an organization Uh, and hopefully even if you work for that sales ops person you're working for a team who can understand like we're going to prioritize what's most important to the business not what we think we need to do today so that's kind of the first thing i would say is you have to take an authority uh check on your organization can you actively tell your stakeholders no because this is going to make us more money over here so that's one if you can do that then you you're ready if not then you need to talk about the values that i talked about about these gaps customer giving feedback durability testing using actual trend data analysis these things are how a revenue operations person can build confidence in order to take that authority back so that they can say no to you know the sales ops man the sales manager when they're saying hey can you build out these workflows in Salesforce?" when in reality we should be doing a pricing page update over here um and so those are kind of the, that's the first step, is you need to take a temperature of authority. Can you tell your your managers no with reason, right? I'm not a big proponent of just saying no to someone, but can you tell them what you're focused on instead? Second piece is that roadmap piece. Without a roadmap, you just look like someone who doesn't want to do work if you're telling people no. So what you really need is a roadmap so that you can point at and say, we're not doing this now because we're doing this right now. And, and I know a lot of operators who can do that verbally and say, this is what my team's working on. We have no bandwidth. But saying you have no bandwidth sounds to, to the outside world like we have no gas in our tank. Like it sounds like a burnout. It sounds like excuses to executives. But instead saying we're focused on this other issue that's going to have a real effect on the business really builds a lot of credibility to operators um, taking their, ste- their first steps into revenue operations.
0: And where do you hang out? Where can people find you?
1: Sure, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Uh, it's uh, You can find me under Jason Reichel on LinkedIn. I post all sorts of stuff there. Um, and uh, that's probably the best place because I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. I do a couple different things. So I'm doing the breadcrumbs thing and I'm also doing a project called Eighth Day, which is about how to help uh, leaders uh, through an app um, really understand the tensions that are holding them back from being the ideal leader they are. And it kind of goes into the RevOps thing. Most people, uh, and this is the kind of the concept for the business, have a have a tension of, like, I want to be better than my shitty boss. Everyone thinks they've had a shitty boss, right? And they want to be better. But what you end up turning into is just a slightly better, worse boss. You just kind of one-up the experience you have, and then you get frustrated as a leader whenever everybody's uh, like, oh, you're not the best leader. And you're like, well, you don't have any idea because I had this one person, and they were terrible. Well, that's not really how you build a really high functioning team. And so teams need to learn how to set uh, a vision for themselves to of what they want to be and who, what, how they want to show up and then they need to learn how to tackle that. So that's also, you can find that on EighthDay.io, um, which is a lot of, uh, content about how to make intentional leaders. Thank
0: you so much, Jason. And who should be my Absolutely. next guest?
1: Ooh, I was thinking about this. So I don't know if you can get him because he, he's pretty big. No, I think uh, David Cancel, have you ever talked to him? He's the CEO of Drift. Um, I think that they are a very innovative company that created a category. Um, creating a category is this concept that like before there wasn't a um, wasn't a category for this kind of software, like CRM, Salesforce helped create the CRM category, right? Um, and they created a conversational marketing, which is this kind of idea that, you, you know, Uh, we want to be where the customers are. And I think that that they have done a lot of good thought leadership work around what fundamentally are shared ideas with revenue operations, which is you need to meet your customers in the experience that they're at, not wait for them to, you know, get that, uh, canned email response from you three days from now that they're going to hopefully click on and then book a meeting with your AE. So I I'm really, really interested in how did he develop those ideas? in a time before revenue operations was a thing. Um, and then how did he go about solving that uh, as a, a enterprise B2B software? That Those would be interesting topics to talk to him about.
0: I love it. Thank you, Jason, so much for being here, sharing your wisdom, your journey with us, and even your tactics. Thank you. <laughs> Keep rolling. Thank Sarah. you very much.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Avoid trying to do thousands of things that doesn't work. We have 274 templates for your business success. Reach your ambitious goals with one-on-one sprint coach.
1: We double your revenue in 90 days.